Weirdo Bookworms, unite. We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us. So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading. Hi, genre junkies. Welcome to another episode. I'm Sandra. I'm Scott. And tonight, we've got some very special stuff going on. Not only do we have a review of Lock Every Door, but we actually have an interview with the author. Yeah, Riley Sager. The Riley Sager. And uh, as all of our interviews are, what an absolute delight it was to speak with him. Ugh. Absolutely. He's totally our type of person. He's totally our type of nerd. You'll see when we get into the interview. It's going to be in between uh, this first section and the spoiler section. And we also have some spoiler questions and answers in the spoiler section, too. It's a two-part interview. How cool is that? So, um... It's a lot of really yummy, delicious, delicious, deliciousness to to share with you today. To scare with you today. That's what I almost <laughs> said. Um, and this is this is a, a creepy little book. Yes, it is. It doesn't fit into a, a a neat little box like some of the other books that we read for this show. Absolutely, it, and we talked to Riley a little bit about that, and I think we're gonna expound upon that as well. Uh, about you know that age old argument: is this thriller? Is this horror? Does it matter? <laughs> like, um, you know, because uh, at one point in the interview, um, Riley talks about it and he mentions how it's like a really fine line between the two for him. And, you know, we like to we like to blur those lines because what people find scary is different for everybody. And what somebody would say, oh, well, this is a thriller. So it sounds like more highbrow is often just horror. So um, we're not saying that's the case with this, but we could see I think we both could see some people being like, oh, this is a thriller because they want to sound more literary. Right. I agree. I think. I think that a lot of I think this is a thriller as much as its inspiration Rosemary's Baby is a thriller. Right. It's a it's a slow burn, it's mysterious. Uh you know, it it, it reveals things to you slowly and it's very suspenseful, but at the end of the day, isn't that just what horror is too? Right. I think that Locking it into a box is not fair to any of the genres that it's related to. I think that this fits into horror as well as thriller, just like anything else does. Speaking of fitting into a box, if you hear a sound, our producer Stitches, uh, the cat, is currently trying to fit into a box. We are moving, if you recall, so there's... um. A lot of boxes around. Very tempting for producer cats. She's very excited about all of them. Yeah. And she fits in all of them. (laughs) So we have so much going on in this episode, and we're going to talk more about this book and its relationship to Rosemary's Baby in the interview and, I think, in the spoiler section. So I think we've got to just jump right in. Let's do it. All right. Let me tell you a little bit about this book. Lock Every Door by Riley Sager. Not only is it blurbed on the front by the tremendous, wonderful mystery writer Ruth Ware, it's blurbed on the back by R.L. Stein, who is um, a god in my pantheon. No visitors, no night spent away from the apartment, no disturbing the other residents, all of whom are rich or famous or both. These are the only rules for Jules Larson's new job as an apartment sitter at the Bartholomew, one of Manhattan's most glamorous and secretive buildings. 
Recently heartbroken and just plain broke, Jules is captivated by the splendor of her surroundings and accepts the terms, ready to leave her past life behind. As she gets to know the residents and staff of the Bartholomew, Jules finds herself drawn to fellow apartment sitter Ingrid, who comfortingly reminds her of her sister, who vanished eight years ago. When Ingrid confides that the Bartholomew is not what it seems, and that the dark history beneath its gleaming facade is starting to frighten her, Jules brushes it off as a harmless ghost story, until the next day, when Ingrid disappears. I'm going to leave it at that. Yes. Just enough to kind of tease you. Um... What a great setup for a neo-gothic fiction. <laughs> Gothic is a great way to put the the setting of this book. Yes. It, it's it, I mean, it's clearly inspired, you know, by by that by that aesthetic. Yeah. Um and this book, I just want to say because I I actually really like the way that that is written, but this book is very hard to determine a point where okay, now we're in spoiler territory. Sure, and and, and because there's so much discovery in the book, it reads so strongly like a mystery where things are being discovered. You know, every chapter. And it's really fun to watch Jules, the main character, figure out what's going on, come up with her own theories, speak with other people who have their own theories. Mm-hmm. And is there actually anything wrong going on? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Is it all in her head? Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. What's happening at the Bartholomew? Uh, I think that's... I agree. It's a great premise for a book of there's this building, there's rules, there's parameters of this environment. And now a character is like, but something bad has happened here. But she's um, in a desperate situation. And she's kind of trapped. Um, I absolutely love paranoia mm-hmm. and conspiracy in my horror. And so this checked a lot of boxes for me. I love that sense of you don't know what's happening. You don't know if what you think is happening is happening. Uh, it's not so much an unreliable narrator as much as, much as it's a, 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 like a thick an cloak. An unknowledgeable narrator. Yeah, it's like this thick cloak is thrown over it and and you're in the dark and you're all trying to find your way out and you have theories. I don't know, man. This just this really spoke to me on a lot of levels this story. And you know what else really spoke to me? The design of this beautiful book. It's my aesthetic. It's absolutely me to it's a T. Beautiful. It's uh first of all, it's we'll post pictures and you guys should look it up if you haven't seen it yet. It's purple and black and hot pink which are my colors. And uh, when you open it up, too, it's got silver writing on the spine, which is purple, uh, that spine, and then a hot pink boards on either side. And then there's an image on the front that's very shadowy, but it looks to be someone wandering through a home, like down a hall, and there's kind of like an open window, and it's very voyeuristic, like you're looking in on this situation. Um, Absolutely beautiful design. It's incredibly eye-catching, which I wonder why more novels don't use bright pink. It was the first thing that that drew me to Severance back then was, wow, here's this really bright pink book on the on the on the bookshelf what is this absolutely and this would this would absolutely draw me the same way that that did i would my eyes would immediately be drawn to it and i would have to read the jacket i love a pink book 
So let's get into it with our experience score. For me, this was absolutely a page turner. I did not want to put this book down. I hated putting this book down. I, I'm exactly the same. Complete page turner, bordering on obsession. Mm. I did wake up in the middle of the night and read some of this book, which is one of my big tells when it's become obsession level. Yeah. I read this book in two days. Yeah, it's probably about right. This was really engrossing. Mm-hmm. And I, I was I was excited every chapter something is happening, whether it be small and creepy or or large and impactful. Right. There's something special at, at every turn of this book. I, I couldn't put it better myself. Totally agree. That fog, that cloak I talked about earlier is just uh, perfect. There was like so much of the story that's like obfuscated and you just want to know more and more and uncover it along with um the character of Jules guiding us through. Let's talk about Jules a little bit. So we have a heroine in this book, and this book is written from her point of view. Uh, Jules is very relatable to many of us, I think. She is very down on her luck right now. She's lost her job. Uh, She's been dumped. She's essentially homeless, but she's kind of couch surfing. And she has a lot of tragedy in her backstory. Um, So maybe you can't relate to the specifics of her her tragedy and her backstory. But I think a lot of us can see ourselves easily in the situation where Jules is, that she's, you know, a hair's breadth away from being homeless and kind of directionless and also can't go to the past because the past is very painful. There, there's, there's something very true about how Jules is written. Anyone who has been in a situation where they have been unemployed mm-hmm. or have been living truly paycheck to paycheck, who have looked at their bank account and said, wow, I have $30 to last me the next week and a half. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's been in that, 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 that situation of just not knowing how you're going to escape what you know where you are financially emotionally she's written in a way that is that is incredibly relatable in yes. that uh it's not just it's not just a uh, a a portion of her character. It's a very large reason for the direction of the plot. It's a huge sense of the reason why she takes the actions that she does. And you know what? I don't know if I would make different choices in her situation. Everything is completely believable. Oh, yeah. It um, it really reminds me a lot of, I mentioned Ruth Ware, and it reminds me a lot of her characters who seem to be these people that are in these situations that are really sticky and they don't have a clean way out. And that's definitely where Jules is, um, why she has to take this position as an apartment sitter. And, you know, it mentions in the blurb that she has a sister who's been missing for quite some time. And that need to right that wrong. And then there's also some stuff revealed about her parents and a need to uh, correct that as well that really drives her where maybe other people would just be like oh whatever something's weird I don't care and just sit back and wait for the inevitable to happen she clearly has like this drive to make things right and in a way she's correcting bad things that have happened in her past 
she is a very fully realized character and Sager has done a very good job of giving her justification for all of her actions Mm -hmm. based on her past and current situation. And you feel for her, you feel a lot of compassion for her, um, a lot of empathy, but you don't feel like she's hopeless or helpless or dumb. And he mentions that in our interview as well, that, you know, he didn't want people to think of her as like that she wasn't smart or she got herself into a bad way in life. Like, no, this is just the cards she was dealt. And we're coming in at this point in her life and trying to see how she can fix it if she can fix it. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about a lot of the characters in this book because it's kind of spoilery. But um, one character I think is worth mentioning is the Bartholomew itself. Yes. The Bartholomew, the building uh, on Central Park, is such a creepy and meaningful force. And it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And it's the source of envy. People um, are outside taking pictures of it or with it because it's such a big deal to be a part of it, a part of the culture of it, or, you know, because everybody's rich or famous or both. And, you know, that's a common tourist trappy thing that we all have a little bit of voyeuristicness in us, where we like to peer into these lives and maybe pretend to be part of it or think if we were part of it. And it's it's beautiful and it's old and it's masterfully built and it's secretive. There's something about the human condition when there's something that you can't see that you're not allowed to go inside that you just you have to know and you start to make up stories about why why can't i go in there what is happening in there and there's real facts in the history of this building that are tragic or weird or morbid and mysterious and that adds to the mythos of the place even more and so then we have this very normal person jules who has grown up idolizing this building her favorite book takes place in the building it's called heart of a dreamer it's a big part of the story and suddenly she's there and she's in it and what does that mean for her to interact with this character that is this building and i don't think you always uh have setting as such a defined character in a novel no the, the closest thing that i can think of is you know spaceships and science fiction have a tendency of taking a on sentience. Uh, exactly yeah uh it's not something you you typically see in in horror like this where you, it's the setting is yeah. a character but not sentient well right i think it is a um a key part of gothic literature that the setting is a character but it's almost like it, it's something we don't see a lot nowadays that that fair yeah yeah so what's going on? What's happening to Jules in this building? That's kind of what we're trying to uncover. And there's some shady stuff in this history of this building, as we've hinted at. Some scary stuff. Is it haunted? Is it not haunted? Uh, let's talk a little bit about the appeal. Okay. I, I'd like to go first with appeal because I think that this book has mass appeal. Agreed. I think part of the reason why it's hard to categorize this thriller, mystery, horror is because it straddles the lines between genres so well. Mm-hmm. I think someone whose who's main uh, source of reading are books like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, Woman in the Window, you know, 
girl this woman that the, <laughs> the, those kind of mystery thrillers will absolutely love this book sure the the, the supernatural element of the book is not a turnoff to to people in that kind of situation. At the same time, people who love horror are absolutely going to get what they need out of this. Particular one, particularly people who love movies like Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's very clearly inspired by that and definitely takes license all its own to, to, to build on that kind of an idea. Yeah. But there's a lot to love in this book. So I'm with you right away. Absolutely mass appeal. And I agree. People who like um, your straight up mysteries, your straight up thrillers are going to absolutely love this. But um, there's a wonderful love letter to horror fans within this story, especially as you said, and as we've mentioned, and we'll continue to mention Rosemary's Baby, because he actually dedicated this book to Ira Levin, uh, which made my heart sore when I saw it. And it's not a ripoff. It's not an homage. It's like a love letter. It really is. It's like taking those stories where there's paranoia, And there's uh, unclear where this path is leading us and what our heroine is experiencing. Uh, I I also liken it a little bit to hereditary in a weird way. I mean, because there's a little bit of the family drama stuff going on. It's all in Jules's past as opposed to her present. But also just the confusion of is this actually supernatural? Is this people or is this someone who is mentally ill what i what i find the most important to express on this book in in regards to rosemary's baby and other inspirations is that it doesn't borrow in story so much as it borrows from tone tone uh thematic yes and there you know it's very difficult to match tone with alfred hitchcock with rosemary's baby with you know these sort of paranoia thriller stories it's not common anymore to actually have that kind of that kind of tone matched because it wasn't that common then it's very difficult to accomplish yes and the fact that this is able to to accomplish it by borrowing but is is brilliant is masterful i couldn't agree more So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go right into the interview, which is spoiler free. And then we're going to jump into the spoiler section where we're going to talk. And we have a few more questions and answers from Riley that are spoilery. So I hope you've all enjoyed the episode thus far. If you haven't yet, please go out and grab this book. You do not want to miss the rest of this conversation. You will not regret it. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Genre Junkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. All right, everybody, we are so honored to get started on this interview. We have Riley Sager, author of Lock Every Door, The Last Time I Lied, and Final Girls. Maybe you heard of him. Hi, Riley. Hey there. Thank you again for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you guys? Doing great. Doing excellent. Very excited to talk to you. Yes. We did read the book, of course. 
And <laughs> we, we did. We did. We, did. Yep. we um <laughs> we sure did. We don't always Shoo, so <laughs> and we hated it. So now we're going to <laughs> part of the show. Yeah. And the interview was done. <laughs> right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> so I, I the first question I have to ask you is how did the Bartholomew come to you? Is it based on a real place? It is. And I mean I think savvy readers who know about Manhattan real estate will know that it's kind of the dakota um it's it's exactly where the dakota would be located is located (laughs) in real life and so that was my jumping off point for this mysterious building the bartholomew you know i made it its own thing you know like i just i I didn't want to replicate the, the dakota's exterior i wanted it to be its own separate building and so that was the fun part is getting to build this creepy old gothic building from scratch and do whatever i wanted it was like gargoyles yeah they're gonna be everywhere (laughs) yeah i I especially appreciate the gargoyles i'm with you on that i wanted to hang out with george yeah yeah george is a good character to write and i do think of george the gargoyle outside her her window as a character Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i'm team george all the way so Part of the suspense in Lock Every Door is the mystery of what's happening at St. Bart's. Did you already know the truth when you started writing? Or what part of the process does that reveal itself to you? Well, I'm I'm very big on outlining. And I can't really start anything without knowing how it's going to end. And I knew I wanted to write about this grand building where sinister things could be happening. But I didn't quite know what was happening in this building. And so my my tradition is I begin the new year by beginning a new book. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I take take New Year's Day off and then January 2nd, I'm working. And the morning of January 2nd, I still didn't know what was going on in this building. Oh, no. (laughs) And, and, And I was like, well, this could be a problem. So, like, I woke up, had my coffee, took a shower, and in the shower, what was actually going on in that building suddenly popped into my head. And I went, Oh my gosh, this is what's going on there. And this could be brilliant or it could be so insane that I'll never write again. <laughs> so I think it's the former, not the latter. I, I'm, I'm, I'm writing another book, so <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would say so too. Um, all of your books are so beautiful. The covers, the typography, the art. Do you have um, any say in the design of those books? I do a little bit. Um, I like With Final Girls, I saw that cover and just went, yeah, that's it. That's perfect. <laughs> that's beautiful. I am in love with it. Um, with Lock Every Door, they gave me options this time, which was, which was neat and new. Um, so they, they had four different concepts and I immediately saw the one with the room and all the doors. I'm like, that's, that's the image right there. Mm. And it just came out beautifully. It's so cool. Like with the purple and the pink and yeah, I love it. Yeah, no, it's, it's so gorgeous. When I saw it, I was just like running my hands over it. I'm like, Oh, it's so beautiful. It's like my aesthetic. And it, it it's like candy. Like it looks like candy and you just yeah. want to devour it. Yes. And we did. and and i like how all of all of your books kind of look like they're almost part of a series even though they're not it it really is kind of part of the whole persona of riley sager i feel like yeah that's pretty cool and that is all on the publisher i i love my publisher you hear a lot of at conferences and things you, you hear lots of authors griping about their publishers and what they're doing or not doing and 
I just have nothing but praise from my publisher and mm-hmm. their design team is just aces. Like yeah. they just they know how to design a fantastic cover. So I have a question about your pseudonym Riley Sager. Was that your idea, your publisher's idea? Where was the inspiration for the name? Well, it was my agent's idea. Um because I have, you know, it is a pen name. I've had books published under my real name and they didn't really do all that well. And so when you get to a certain point in publishing, your past sales sort of reflect on how much money and effort the publisher is going to put into you know, your next book. And so I'd reached that point where my name was actually kind of a liability. And it, and it, it's, it happens more often than you think, to be honest. And so I wrote Final Girls and my agent said, this is amazing. This is going to be your breakout book. We need to use a pen name. <laughs> and so I went, okay, whatever you think, because I, I trust her implicitly. And so I'm like, if you think I need a pen name, I will, I will do a pen name. And so she suggested maybe an old family name. So um, Sager is my grandmother's maiden name. Oh, I love that. And, and Riley was, I kind of wanted to do initials. And my first thought was my parents' initials, which is R and L. Oh. And then I realized R.L. R. Stein had the market on that. <laughs> and, and so, but Riley was a really great alternative. So that's, that's how the name was born. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that story. I love the stories behind pseudonyms because they always have yeah. so much meaning. And then the irony is that R.L. Stein blurb lock every door, which was just crazy. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like full circle. Full circle. I love it. So Heart of a Dreamer is a lifeline for Jules. Is there a book or author that is or was a lifeline for you in the way it is for Jules? A Catcher in the Rye, I think. You know, I, I read that before. We had to read it in class in 11th grade, but I'd read it like two or three years before that. Mm-hmm. And it just spoke to me like it speaks to a lot of teenagers at that time where they just are confused by everything and they're aimless and they don't know who they are. And it's this discovery process. And so reading Catcher in the Rye at that age kind of told me it's okay to not quite know what you want to do or where you're going. You'll 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 get there. Ooh, that's a wonderful answer. I, I we both love Catcher in the Rye. I think that's relatable for us too. For Jules, it's coming up with that book, you know, it it was originally to serve the plot. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted because this book, Heart of a Dreamer, takes place in the Bartholomew. And so for Jules to suddenly get the opportunity to live there in the location of her favorite childhood book is just another reason for her to move into this place. But also in the book, her sister read it to her. Mm. And you know Jules' backstory is a very tragic one. And her sister has been missing for 10 years. And that was another way to get into Jules' psychology. I like it. So okay. it was... Yeah, it was, it was just, how can I make Jules relatable? How can I get her in this building? How can I keep her in this building? And so once you sort of latch on to these certain ideas, it's, it's fun to just sort of like go with them. All right. What are some of your favorite horror movies, books, TV shows? We're huge horror nerds, especially me. And I, I love to ask this question. I know it's hard to pick favorites, but uh, we all love to hear it. Um, well, first, Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Um, that was absolutely the inspiration for Lock Every Door. All right. Um, so much so that I had to dedicate the book to Ira Levin. Oh, 
That's what a great way to start that book too. I saw that and I just I almost cried. I was so happy. <laughs> and and that that was that one's for the fans. Like I think you know, as someone opening that book and they see that dedication, they either might be like, "What?" or <laughs> they might be like, "Yeah, I, I hope not." But there are people out there. Yeah. But I think a lot of the the, the smart people will be like, "Ooh, I'm in for a treat now" because right. they see that name there. And so, and I actually. There is a line from, I think it's both in the book and the movie that I lifted directly and put it in lock every door sort of as my, just in case you don't understand that this is my homage to Rosemary's baby. Here's an exact (laughs) line of dialogue from it. So (laughs) that's fantastic. Okay. Uh, What else? What are some of your other favorites? I love Scream. Yes. Scream. Scream is what kind of hooked me on horror movies. Um, I saw it in college which dates me. And, <laughs> it, and I, I can't believe that movie's like 23 years old now. It's like, right. gosh, where does the time go? Yes. But I, I wasn't a horror fan per se, but for some reason, I just really wanted to see Scream. And I saw it opening weekend and it blew me away. I'd never seen something that scary, yet that funny, <laughs> yet that intelligent. And it, it welcomed the viewer. It wasn't talking down to the viewer it was saying, if you're in this audience right now, you're smart enough to know these references and what we're going for. And so just enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm. So I saw it in theaters three times and I did the same with Scream 2. <laughs> <laughs> Scream 3, not so much. But um, yeah, so th- those are big influences. Um, Halloween, uh, uh, all, the, all the Alfred Hitchcock movies. Yes. Yeah. And I'm so excited. Um. I live in Princeton and the downtown movie theater does a series every summer where they, they show classic films on weeknights. And so this year, one of them is rear window. And so I finally get to see rear rear window on the big screen and I'm just so excited. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. That is really, really exciting. Probably my favorite movie other than Mary Poppins, which doesn't apply to this conversation. But, <laughs> it absolutely it does. Yeah. It's, it's Jaws. <gasps> yes. and, and Peter Benchley was living in Princeton when he wrote Jaws. So there's my little Benchley connection. Nice. Yes. And that, that downtown theater shows Jaws every summer. Uh. And so I got to, got to see that on the big screen last summer. And it was great. Uh, isn't that incredible to get to see some of your favorite movies up on the big screen? It just makes you just geek out. It's a great feeling. And we appreciate the Mary Poppins because we're also huge Disney fans. So I can tell you're a Disney fan. I am the biggest Disney nerd. Yay! Um, when when Final Girls hit the bestseller list, as a present to myself, I bought Walt Disney's autograph. And it was the most expensive present I've ever given <laughs> myself or anyone. And and it's it's now like my most prized possession. So uh, that was that was my pat on the back for job well done. Job well done indeed. I'm incredibly jealous. That makes me want to do something very successful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, there's a, a coterie of us out there that are horror and Disney fans. And when we find each other, we're like, yes, you, you are my people. Yes, there's a, I was just in Disney World last week. And at the when we came back at the airport waiting for our luggage, there was this guy and he just had all these Disney tattoos all over his arms. And 
I was so tempted to just go up to him and be like, hi, we're going to be friends. <laughs> hi, my name's Riley. I'm your new best friend. Yeah. Yeah. We're, whether you like it or not, we're going to be besties and you're just going to have to deal with it. Exactly. Because it's so rare to see someone that outspoken in their Disney nerddom. Yes. So I, I, I knew that he was a good egg right there, just looking at the tattoos. <laughs> right. I have a huge Disneyland tattoo on my leg. So so we can be best friends, right? That means we're best friends now? We can, yes. 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 Awesome. Cool. What, what's your favorite ride? Well, see, we're Disneyland people. We've never been to Disney World, so just get that out of the way. Um, I live and die for the Haunted Mansion. Me too. In fact, Good. the the creepy wallpaper and lock every door. Yes, no. is inspired. <gasps> no. Yeah, that's the haunted mansion wallpaper. But the haunted, I have a haunted mansion mug, coffee mug with that wallpaper on it. And I was drinking out of it the other day, and there just happened to be a copy of Lock Every Door sitting there. Mm. And I looked. I'm like, oh my gosh, yep. these match. I love it. Oh like, my gosh. And so they really did. I had to take a picture and post it on Instagram and be like. The feeling when your book jacket matches your Haunted Mansion coffee mug because they look, they, they went together perfectly. Uh, talk about another full circle moment. Love it. Yeah. Uh, uh, have you have you gone to the level of decorating your room yet, like the Haunted Mansion or something <laughs> along those lines? Yes. I, I noticed there's a lot of talk of actual decoration in the book. I'm, I'm curious if that's something that you like to do yourself. It is. And in fact... I just moved into a house in May. And so there has been a lot of decorating in my life right now. <laughs> so, a, a lot of picking paint colors and um, choosing wallpaper and things like that. Um, and I now have an office all to myself that's for writing only. And that is where all of my, my Disney stuff is. So it's that's where Walt's autograph is hanging. Oh. And... I have a Haunted Mansion poster up there ah. and, you know, lots of attraction art and just Mickey Mouse stuff. So, yeah, that's that's my big Disney nerd cave is what I call it. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and that's where I write these really dark, scary things. <laughs> <laughs> Sandra and Scott, get on plane, fly to Princeton. <laughs> You're like, Where's, why is there a knock at my door all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah, why, wow, they're fast. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of the the best horror is written by people who have a sense of whimsy and a sense of wonder as well, because it just it, there, there's something about making it creepier when you just have that idea of fantasy in your head. Ha, have you taken inspiration from that to to write some of your books? So where where do you pull from for that? I, I get a lot of inspiration from the movies. Um, I like to take these pop cultural tropes that everyone is familiar with mm -hmm. and then sort of put a different spin on them. Mm -hmm. So with, with final girls, it, it truly came from, it was Halloween and I was watching Halloween <laughs> and I just thought, what happens to Laurie Strode after this? Now that's been answered multiple times. <laughs> and, 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 but you know, just the question of what happens to a final girl after the events of the movie and that sort of was the springboard for I know Final Girls has been called like a horror novel, but I think of it as more of a psychological thriller with horror elements. I, I call it what you want to. I just, you know, I think it's a great book. I'm not biased or anything. <laughs> but um, so that's that's what started that. And, um, you know, last time I lied, it was inspired by Picnic a Hanging Rock. Oh, love it. I, I was watching the Criterion Collection edition of, of Picnic Hanging Rock and went, 
I want to write a book about girls who vanish. Yes. But instead of a school, let's make it a summer camp. Creepier. And let's, yeah, let's make the camp maybe possibly haunted and maybe sort of not on the up and up. So, <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, with, with Lock Every Door, it was, it was definitely, I want to do my version of Rosemary's Baby, not remake Ira Levin's version, mm-hmm. but sort of put my spin on it and use the expectations of people who are familiar with Rosemary's Baby and then subvert those. And that's it's just a ton of fun. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I love it when things become a part of pop culture and they really um, inspire. An example I use all the time is Batman. Batman belongs to the people and there's so many different interpretations of it. So I, I totally understand what you're saying. And you had mentioned about horror and 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 thriller and difference. I, you know, I noticed that the book is classified as you know suspense, mystery, fiction. Uh, do do you consider this book horror, and do you think there's a difference? I think there is a difference between psychological thriller and horror, and I like to walk that fine line between the two, so that it can sort of be classified as either of those things. And I think it's it's more interesting for me as a writer, and it's interesting for the reader to not know sort of which side the book is going to land. Mm-hmm. Is this going to be horror? Is this going to be thriller? And I th- think it gives the book a certain tension that otherwise wouldn't be there if you classified it distinctly as something. And And I do think that in the psychological thriller genre, there has been a more recent movement toward the gothic and the supernatural. Um an example, it's it's not out yet. It's coming out in August. It's The Turn of the Key by Ruth Ware. Oh, one of my most and anticipated. Yes. It's so good. <gasps> okay. It's so good. This is this is the perks of being a writer. Um <laughs> she was she was gracious enough to take time out to read Lock Every Door and give a blurb and it's on the cover and it's an amazing blurb. Yeah. And then and then she sent along a copy of The Turn of the Key. And I'm like, how lucky am I? Jeez. Oh, oh my <laughs> and, gosh. And it's just, it's so creepy. And so like she does with the turn of the screw, like what I do with Rosemary's baby, you take that outline and then you make it your own. And she does it wonderfully. And it just gave me chills. Oh. And I love that we're, we're heading in this direction where we're not really constrained by genre now. Like we can do thriller and supernatural and horror and it can all be like, one big happy mixture of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One happy, twisted, beautiful family. Yes, we can all get along. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For a show about genre fiction, like we are, we we've been big proponents of th- this. This can be considered many different things. One of our things that we always go to is not actually a book, but a movie is uh, Gravity. We consider to be a horror mm-hmm. uh, because you know you could the, the lines are blurred now. Yeah. Yeah, do you I mean it's 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 been so many years so I don't care if we spoil it. Do you <laughs> think she's dead at the end? You know, that's a great question. I'm such an eternal optimist. I decided she was alive. I, I think she's alive as well. That that's kind of my read on it. Do you have a different opinion? I kind of think she's she died. I love that. I just I because there was something about like how lucky is she that she just happens to land in I guess a pond or something where she can just walk out of the water. Like it just, yeah. it seemed, it seemed too perfect of a landing mm-hmm. for her. Mm-hmm. And 
and she just sort of exits unscathed <laughs> and you don't really you don't really see where she's at no and so true. i kind of i kind of like the idea of you know maybe she didn't survive that and that she's okay with that because now she's yeah. with her son. I like that idea too. I mean, like I said, I I tend to take kind of an optimistic look at things, but I'm totally fine with her being dead. <laughs> that works. <laughs> Riley, where can our listeners find you? Where are you going to be? Are you doing a tour? Are you all online? I am doing a tour. Um, I'll be in. Well, I'm in Princeton tomorrow, so that's convenient. <laughs> um, and then. <laughs> Um, next week I'm heading out. I'll be in Houston, Austin, New York City, Pennsylvania. Um, so yeah, that's going to be a week of travel, and I I can't wait to get out there and meet readers. As for online, my website is RileySagerBooks.com, and at the top of the page there are links to my Instagram and my Twitter and my Facebook. Oh, perfect! You're very accessible. <laughs> I really am. Yeah. <laughs> Riley Sager, there for the people. I love it. I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Um, any plans to come to the West Coast? There aren't any at the moment. Aww. It's it's weird because when like the tour schedule was announced, I mean it's it's I'm not a good traveler. Like I like to travel, but just airports, planes, it just wears me out. And so like to do like a 20 city tour would might possibly kill me. Oh. And so so I like to keep them, you know. Small, yeah. Um, but when it was announced, people are like, "Oh, please come to Colorado, or please come to Washington, and, and yeah. please come." And it's like, and like, I would love to, <laughs> but I have to write another book, <laughs> and there's not, I don't, and I don't have that much time. And also, you know, I'm lucky in that my publisher pays for these things. Yes. And so, yeah, they're. I'm sure that maybe, hopefully, they would love to send me to California, uh-huh. but just not this year. Well, well, maybe we should just talk with your publisher and the three of us go to Disneyland and uh we'll do a little <laughs> we'll do a little live episode, do a little Disneyland fun. We'll just do it that way. Well, I I do hope to get to Disneyland later this year. It's been a while since I've been there. Yeah. And, you know, now that a certain Star Wars land has opened up there. Mhm. Well, if I can just uh throw this in there to maybe tempt you to convince your publisher to send you to Northern California. Not only is there Bodega Bay where the birds was filmed and there's a very big Hitchcock following there. There's also the Disney family museum in San Francisco. See, look at all these things we're trying to tempt you over with. I have been to the Disney family museum and it is incredible. Oh, isn't it though? Just, I, I got yelled at though for taking a picture of his Oscar. Oh, the one with the the the, the seven dwarves one. Oh, like all the mini Oscars. I, t- I whipped out my camera and I was taking pictures, and someone was like, "Sir, there are no pictures taken here." I'm like, "Oh, sorry." Oh, but busted. It's, but you busted. still have it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, true fan. Oh, I'm sorry, but I'm keeping it. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. Riley, thank you so much for stopping by and talking to the genre junkies today. No, thank you. It was so much fun. Always, <laughs> always pleasure to talk to genre fans and Disney fans. Yay, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, here it is, the spoiler section. Oh, and there's so much to discuss in the spoiler section. I want to start if you don't mind. Please. So... In Rosemary's Baby, <laughs> in the uh, 
in the story, especially in the film, the filmmaker, Roman Polanski, uh, has a way of delivering us the story where up until the very end, nothing supernatural has happened. Everything could absolutely be dismissed as being in her mind. And I think that that was something that I thought about a lot when I read Lock Every Door, is that there's nothing actually supernatural that's happening, but you can kind of like deduce that it could be supernatural, um, including like all of her dreams, which are vivid and creepy. You're like, is there like an otherworldly influence at play here? And then the notion of the cult comes to light and you're like, oh, okay, so th this is like a supernatural thing? Uh, and then you'd be wrong again. And it's not until the very end that we see everything is disgustingly and sadly so human in its motivations. Brilliant. I was so pleased with that. And that that's where it really turns itself turns the book turns itself on its head is that it follows a Rosemary's Baby uh um I don't know recipe if you sure. will except at the end of the day there is nothing supernatural at all no, nothing it at is all. all just human greed and it's not in her head nope and I, I I really like that part of it I thought it was a very inventive way to 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 expand on the story. And what I appreciate so much about Sager's work in this book is it's important when a twist comes around that it be at least somewhat um, hinted at. Yeah. You know, I've, I've come around a lot and I think that, that guessing the, the, the outcome is overall a good thing. Sure. Because it means that the author has set it up correctly. You know, by the time that it was revealed that, you know, Nick was involved in it. Uh, I had, I had, I had guessed it. Sure. In fact, I had even said to Sandra, who was a little bit further than I was in the book at that time, I said, "I think I know what's happening here." Right. And literally minutes later, I was right. Nick was involved, but I thought that Nick was a serial killer. Well, and that's a really good uh, theory. And then I was also really back and forth on. Is Nick involved or is Nick a red herring? I had a little bit of that too, where I was like, is he actually a part of this? Or are we just being led to think he is? And I liked that I really had to question that and go back and forth. But, and I mean, I have to say, I kind of knew that he was involved once they slept together. It is a, it is a bit of a trope that, you know, in that sort of situation. And I was okay writing that trope, especially because so many other things were subverted in it. Mm -hmm. It was another way of setting up the experienced reader of, okay, Nick's a bad guy, right? Yeah, he's a bad guy. But yeah. you have no idea what, just yeah. how bad. What kind of bad? <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Really, truly, thank you. We That was obviously, yeah. The end of the episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm stopping the recording, but yeah. we'll say goodbye. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, do, do you? I can say stuff for the spoiler space if you want me to. <gasps> okay. If you want to ask, a, <laughs> if you want to ask a spoiler question, because that's that's the trouble with this book is I can't talk about it. I can talk about it, but not really. Yes. Okay. Because one of the things about it is that the the real spoiler comes very late in the book. Yeah. It it does, and that was that was the thing where I'm like. I know it's not going to be Satanism, but I want everyone to think it's Satanism. Yes. And so what is the thing that's actually more insane than Satanism? 
oh, an organ transplant black market, obviously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so like, and that was, I really, truly sweated that. I'm like, is this too bonkers? Are people like just going to read that, get to that part and just be like, nope, done. Slam the book and never pick it up again. And I really had to spoil it for people. Like, I mean, to my editor and my agent and, you know, a, a, a close friend of mine, we we're having coffee. I'm like, I'm just going to tell you the ending of my book. And I'm sorry that I'm spoiling it for you before you even read it. And all of them were like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Go with it. Yes. And and so their reactions are what convinced me to like be like, OK, I think I'm going to go with this, even though it is utterly bananas. It really is. Is it though? But in a good way. Is it though? No, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a conspiracy a, person. A, a friend of mine read it and said, now I know how Dick Cheney got one of his hearts. <laughs> oh, no. But I mean, you so, know, stranger things have happened. Yeah. And, I, and that was that was try to ground it in some kind of reality where people will think, okay, this is outlandish, but I bet this exists somewhere. Yes. Well, in my, in my research, I did find out that in India, there's a lot of like people from the upper classes find lower class people who need money and are a match and will pay them like $10,000 to pretend to be like a cousin <gasps> and that they're willingly, I'm a cousin, I'm willingly donating my kidney to them. Oh my God. Now, and it is a huge issue there. It's a big problem. That is true horror. I mean, yeah. That is really horrifying. The the twist of it being organ harvesting, that completely floored me. Yeah, me too. I did not see that. I, I didn't see it coming, but even that was set up. Well, I was like, are they like some sort of weird, like uh, using a black magic to keep themselves alive the th sort of thing? That's kind of was more my direction of it. And then, yeah, I did have some flashes of Nick being your run of the mill serial killer. And what a great place to be a serial killer in such a secretive building. It makes sense because you have Greta who's signing these books, Your Youth Gives Me Life. Yes. Which is literally true. Yeah. Which sets you up for the supernatural element of, right. oh, it's a cult who are doing human sacrifices to extend their life. But at the end of the day, they don't need to do it in supernatural methods. Right. It's called organ harvesting. That That's all you need. Can I just say for the record, I'm a tiny bit sad it wasn't a satanic cult. <laughs> I love a good I love a good cult. I I do too, but I, I just I had a feeling that if I went in that direction, people would be like, so he's just utterly ripping off Ira Levin. <laughs> wholesale, other than the pregnancy and the haircut. You know, it's 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 Rosemary's baby. And so I wanted to do something <laughs> different. And I had a lot of people say like, oh, thank God it wasn't Satanist. Right. Yes. Because they, they thought that it was going to be and they were so sure that they could see it coming from a mile away. Yeah. And then, oh, it's not. <laughs> oh, especially when she wakes up from surgery with the bandages. I'm like, oh, what did they put in there? <laughs> what did they put oh, in yes. there? <laughs> yeah. In the interview with Riley, we talk about the socioeconomical themes of this, and he didn't want to be preachy or heavy-handed with it, and I appreciate that. But there are people in this country and in this world who do look down 
on people who have less money than them. And they see themselves as better. And they see themselves as more important. And I thought that was all incredibly, incredibly moving and engaging and really just fired me up as a proud working class blue collar person. Uh especially I've I've grown up that way and I, you know, that's a big part of my identity is, you know, watching poor people fight and scrape against other poor people when it's like we should be banding together because we're the more oppressed ones by these uh upper echelons. Were you wanting to convey like a a political or societal message with this? Yeah, I mean, not to. I don't want to be too preachy about it mm-hmm. because that just turns people off. Right. But th- there is like you know the the one percent keeps getting more of that the the, the pot, and the rest of us are just sort of left mm-hmm. with the scraps. And right. and and just to speak from personal experience, you know, like five years ago. I was laid off from my newspaper job. Uh. I was dropped by my publisher. Uh. I couldn't get a job interview to save my life. And it was very, very scary. Mm-hmm. I it was it was it was a year of like pretty much pure terror of like, am I going to run out of money? Am I going to how am you know, how am I going to live? Right. And so I, I did sort of tap into that when writing Jules and her thoughts about her financial predicament because mm-hmm. I had been there not too long ago, and it's it's once you go through that, it really does stick with you. Oh yes, yeah. I've uh, I've been laid off from jobs twice, and it is so scary. And you can just tell when you meet people, and it's like, wow, you've never had that fear, and uh, it does kind of make your blood boil a little. Yeah, and so this was sort of me kind of making the. <sighs> The rich, the bad guys, I guess, because there, there is a, like, there's. I, I think of like, you know, all these these corporations now. And it's like, and and you know, unfortunately, Disney is one of them, where things yeah. are getting so expensive there, and it's like, how much money do you need? Yeah, like they just raised their annual passes, like they increased it by what, like twenty percent or something oh, per yeah. annual right. pass. It's huge, even for locals. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, just how much profit do you? need yes and the answer is not not as much as you're getting like you know disney would be just fine (laughs) without you know charging you know raising their prices like every six months right right no or or amazon with you know amazon can like i just read that like he's the richest man in the world Mm -hmm. it's like how many billions of dollars do you need? <laughs> yeah. When is it? When is it enough? It, it, you know. Do do people? Do corporations understand? I don't know. And I think it's all about their their shareholders and economic. But but anyway, it's like yeah. they're doing it at the um. You know, the the, the workers are the ones that are paying the price. Mm-hmm. And so I did want to give Jules sort of. Well, I wanted people to root for her. Yes. And I didn't want her to be come off as being stupid. Right. Or like this is her fault. I I wanted her to be like. This happened to me and it could maybe happen to you and have people care about her. Mm -hmm. So because it can happen to anyone at any time for no for no real reason of, you know, no, no fault of their own. Right. Yeah. Other than just that someone somewhere decided that their company isn't making enough profit that quarter and therefore they have to, you know, trim some some jobs and that just could devastate 
entire families. Right. That's a and real so, human. Yeah. Um, and so, so this was my, uh, my sort of, yeah, my using horror to get some social messaging in there and yes, hopefully change a couple minds. A time-honored tradition in horror to exactly. reflect. Yes. But more so than that, and this is something we didn't have time to talk to Riley about, uh, I found the notion very captivating of this fountain of youth sort of feel. Most of Western civilization seems to be obsessed with avoiding death and prolonging our lives. But the writing's on the wall. You can never really escape it. And you're prolonging your life for what purpose when you have to get your hands so bloody? And whose lives are really being prolonged by all of this science and money that's being put into this? Not not the common man. Mm-hmm. It is the the elite. Yeah. I appreciate how Sager made Nick not just um not just motivated by money. Yeah. It would have been really easy to say, well, they're paying really well. Right. No. At the end of the day, he truly felt that he and others of their importance were better, were more important. He's a snobby elitist, and he talks about it a few times, and he uses that word importance, importance. And it's like, it's just been bred into this brat. And now he's got a god complex that's been handed down generation to generation. And so then you have an even more, like, disgusting, formidable villain. And the complacency of the staff and others who've lived at the the hotel, the apartment for generations, uh, that they, you know, they're benefiting it benefiting from it in some way so they just kind of wash their hands of it and turn away and you're like you just want to slap them all and be like don't you see and it's nice that charlie kind of gets a little bit of a redemption in there that it's like you can tell that he really loves his daughter and that's why he's participating but it's like at what cost you will end up hating yourself and and how much is her life really worth? Is it really worth the lives of all these other people? Greta is so complicated in her relationship to it because she has that self-loathing and she acknowledges it. And of course, Jules is like, I hope you live a long time. So you have to think about this every single day. And ultimately, Greta helps her escape. I like that that she and Greta really did end up having a uh, A bond yeah i like a curmudgeon character that actually has a little shiny underbelly to it but greta (laughs) really pushes that trope because you're like oh but you're pretty insidious and yet she's apologetic and she has sympathy like nick you know he's like ah your sob stories you're big and you're growling that doesn't work on me but greta does kind of work on her uh, because she does clearly kind of hate herself for it. I also like these Hannibal Lecter vibes I got at the end of she got away. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but she won't be bothering Jules. No, she you will. They will never again cross paths. Yeah. So there's these wonderful ass kicking moments, which we talk about with Riley about, you know, her going down in the elevator and flipping them all off. And, you know, that everybody's kind of standing back of her and her blood and her nightgown and her knife and her dog. And she's like, I'm the type of girl you don't want to f 
with, which is an actual line from the book, which made me all kinds of cheering. Um, Did you love that part too? Yeah, there's something powerful about her not even needing to go on a killing rampage at the end. Just, hey, um... I'm holding a knife. I'm covered in blood. I'm burning the. I'm burning the building down. It, we gotta burn it, it down. It's over. We Just, gotta burn. We gotta. Yeah. We gotta burn the 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 mofo down. I've had um, several people tell me that it's like their favorite part of the book because it's it's mine too. Is Jules's final elevator ride? Oh, where she's it's almost almost a carry moment but not really where she's just in the elevator in the bloody nightgown holding the knife yeah and then and then she sees that little dog and she's like i'm taking the dog <laughs> yes <laughs> this just, is my dog yeah <laughs> yeah it just marches as smoke is trailing behind her and it just was you know like that was the moment where i'm like jules is a stone cold badass and i yes. love it Oh, I was so here for it. Because, well, nobody wants the dog to die. And poor Rufus, you just felt for him through this book, like when he doesn't want to wear his little hats and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he need, he needed a home. He needed a good mom. And and I tried to think of ways to punish all the people in that building. Yes. And the, for, for that, that soap opera, for Marianne Duncan, I'm like, what's the harshest punishment she could receive? <laughs> Someone takes her dog away from her. Yes. <laughs> Um, I really loved it when she lit everything on fire and then closed the doctor and Jeanette, the nursing aide, inside the the room. I was sad to hear that they escaped. I mean, I'm glad they have to face justice. Everybody couldn't die because there has to be, you know, like, it has to be able to go to the media and the courts and these people have to be found guilty and stuff and all the records. But I would have totally been okay with just a couple people roasting alive trapped in that room. Yeah, did anyone die in the blaze? No, Nick decided to end his life rather than facing the music. Well, yes, but that's... And of course, I'm sure that he saw in his head as being this selfless act, just like his great-grandfather. Right, exactly. Which is so It was very martyrdom of of himself, yeah. Uh, But no, even Mr. Leonard scrapes across the floor. But I I, don't want to say that that's a complaint I have with this book, but I just would have gotten a lot of satisfaction from knowing a few people roasted to death because they were so evil (laughs) sorry not sorry (laughs) uh love love rufus love george i love rufus and 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 i i love ingrid me too i i just it made me so happy that she survived yeah i was not expecting it i thought she was gone forever me too i thought they got her and i i'm i was it was just one of the most joyous moments yeah. When I fit, when when it's like, oh, she's alive. I'm like, what? Yeah. Really? And now her and Bonnie are working and have an apartment together. And it just made me feel like really good and not like in a saccharine way, but like that these women all pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and are fighting and thriving. They're traumatized, obviously, but they didn't let this break them. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the moment Jules has in the hospital bed where she decides, no, I- I'm going to fight. I'm not going to just go quietly into that cold, dark night. Which is why I think it's important that Bonnie as a character is introduced. Because yes. it's another it's another show of, of 
people fighting, people, she's, people she's, struggling. Yeah, but, but she's working, she's trying, but she cannot get ahead. She she's an, she's a professional. She has a real job, but she can't afford a place. She's she can't afford anything. Regardless, she's in a homeless shelter, and that's that's what that's how she is fighting. Right, and I think it's important to show because it's true. Not everyone who is homeless is is hopeless. Not right. everyone who is homeless. The, the picture that that people have of the homeless in their heads. I mean, you uh, is alcohol, drugs, uh, gave up on life, and it's just not true. No, it's not true at all. Th- there's there's so many people out there who just can't get ahead. They they're doing all the quote unquote right things. They're you know. They're, they're, they could be your coworker. They yeah. could be your it, classmate. Exactly. And you yeah. don't know. Yeah. And the fact that they are strong and resilient and fighting, ugh, that just means so much to me. And it, it really, really fills my heart, truly. Um, we ask Riley, too, about Jane. What happened to Jane? Do you know what happened to Jane? I know what happened to Jane. And, and in fact, I was going the the book originally ended the very final epilogue was about Jane. Oh. And I liked not knowing what happened to her. Mm. Mm-hmm. I I liked the fact that Jules I mean I think it would have been too pat for for Jane to suddenly appear. Yes. And you know Jules, Jules has this happy ending and you know I I like the idea of Jules still having some hope after all that she'd been through. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. See, see what we, we have our own theories about uh, what happened to her as well. <laughs> I don't think we agree, but we have we our agree. own theories. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's like I, I would, I'm dying to tell people what it is, but at the same time, it's like you know, I want people to sort of have their own ideas of what happened to Jane, and if they think that's what happened, then that's what happened. Yes, I like that too. I like a little ambiguity. I'm, I'm not surprised that he knows. That he knows what happened to Jane. Yeah. I really, I really was tempted to ask him what, like, it, what is but, Jane but I alive? Don't, but I don't want to know. But I, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if I do either. I like, I like it in my head what's, you know, what happened to Jane. Um, I think Jane is dead. I think Jane is alive. Now, you see, for me, as somebody who's super close to her sister and has a tremendous bond. Um, And, you know, obviously I don't have Jules's life, but went through some hard times in life to be where they are now. I can't see her abandoning her little sister. And so that's why I think that she is gone because I don't think she would ever, if she had a chance, not go back to Jules. And I think I have a different take on Jane as a character myself. Uh-huh. And it's just based on little things in the book. I don't think that Jane and Jules were as close as Jules fantasizes. An example that I'll use, the one little hint in there that I that I'm grasping onto for this is when Jules is being tripped on the bus, the story she's telling, mm-hmm. and she talks about how it happens day after day after day. Yeah, and the all and 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 you come to find out, Jane has been on the bus this entire time, right. and the only time she stepped in was 
when Jules finally got a bloody nose and she lost her temper and she beat the crap out of this kid, but she didn't step in before. Well, okay, but that's... I disagree with where you're coming at mm-hmm. with that. Because, because for me, it feels more like the complacency of the people at the hotel that nobody wants to get their hands dirty. They want to go with the status quo. They don't want to be seen as different or other, especially, you know, in the case of Jules and Jane, they're poor and, you know, they don't have all the name brand stuff. Um, so she wanted to slip under the radar until she just couldn't stand by anymore. She had a sense of justice. I, I, I know. And I, I, I get that read as well. I think I think that read is totally valid. And I think, honestly, there's probably more evidence towards that than towards my theory. But my 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 headcanon for it is there, there's a lot of revisionist history when it comes to loss. Mm-hmm. When you lose someone who's close to you, mm-hmm. uh, all of the bad things go away and all of the good things become heightened. And one of the sub themes of this book is um you know trying to to find success trying to escape giving up um not not giving up i i i shouldn't even necessarily say giving up it's letting go of of what of what you are and and hoping for something better in some respects not in a good way in other respects in good ways but but that kind of selfishness mm-hmm. is a is a theme of this book and and a part of jane i feel ties into that for me very interesting and i i'm i'm pretty sure i'm wrong but <laughs> i it's the head canon that i have and i don't want that i don't want that spoiled so i guess we got to put a final score on this I'll gargoyles. Start. Well, it's, it's got to be gargoyles. It has to be gargoyles. I'll start. Um, because I loved this book as one horror fan to another, as one thriller fan to another, as one person uh, who loves and adores Rosemary's baby to another, and for all the wonderful things it had to say about women and loss and fighting and not giving up hope and asking questions and taking initiative and just being a beautiful, wonderful, creepy, gothic book, I have to give this four gargoyles out of five. Um, I wish <laughs> I wish there'd been more people dying. <laughs> <laughs> I wish there'd been more people dying. Everybody knows I love a cult. I'm glad ultimately that it wasn't a cult, but I could have used some more creepy, satanic-y clues along the way. That would have um really done a number on me to uh, see where the book was going. But it's smart, and it's a wonderful look at let's update tropes, let's update pop culture, and let's make something reminiscent but new. Well done, Riley. Great book. I This book is very very unique in many ways and very reminiscent of the past in others. I think that it does an incredible job of using uh, using existing tropes and expectations against the reader while also using it to excite the reader. I can't think of ways that this could have been executed any better than it was. I'm giving it five beautiful gargoyles out of five. Wow. I, I, wow. High praise. I loved this book. Same. Yes. I love a good thriller. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love a thriller that 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 brings itself more into our genre universe as yes. well. Yes, I I loved everything about this book. I, there's nothing I would change. This is going to be a reread for me. Oh yeah. There are there are lots of little hints in the beginning that I you know once everything came to I remembered and processed with me, but I want to experience it again, knowing what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, he's an auto-buy author, and he's a reread author. 100% agree. All right, guys, there you have it. Lock every door. Climb every mountain. <laughs> Cross every stream. Oh, I see where you're going with this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Riley, again, for being there to discuss this book and the wonderful folks who gave us the opportunity to read it a little ahead of schedule. Thank you, dear readers uh, and listeners, for sticking with us. And I hope you enjoyed this book in this episode. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sandra. And please keep reading past your bedtime. 